Welcome to PSQH, the podcast. I'm your host, Jay Kumar, Editor-in-Chief of PSQH. On this episode, I talked to Dr. Mike Doolin, Head of the Academy for Population Health Innovation at UNC Charlotte, about how implicit bias increases the risk of poorer health outcomes for non-white patients. This episode is sponsored by Origami Risk. And now, on to the interview. I'm joined today by Dr. Mike Doolin, Head of the Academy for Population Health Innovation at UNC Charlotte. Welcome, Dr. Mike. Thanks very much. I'd be here this afternoon. Great to have you. And I was wondering, um, before we get started, if you could tell me a little bit about yourself and about the Academy. Sure. Yeah, I'm happy to. So I'm a primary care physician. Uh, I've worked in Charlotte, North Carolina, uh, providing primary care services for about the past 24 years. I actually started my career in the technology space um, as a data scientist uh, supporting a chip manufacturing company and then went into medicine. And really the passion in my career has been using data technology, advanced analytics to improve the delivery of care. And particularly with thinking about improving the delivery of care to overcome health inequities um, and improve outcomes for, for people with adverse, adverse social determinants of health. Um, the Academy for Population Health Innovation has now been in existence for about six years. And it's a partnership between UNC Charlotte and our local public health department. And our goal is to address local public health needs uh, and to advance community health for everybody that lives in our community in Charlotte, North Carolina, and Mecklenburg County. And that, that goes you know, across the range of public health issues, everything from HIV prevention, access to healthy foods, tobacco cessation, um, access to parks, green spaces, clean air, um, the, the whole gamut of public health. Yeah, so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the current state of health equity in the U.S. Yeah, unfortunately, we have a lot of opportunities to improve health equity in the U.S. And you know, I think even before COVID, we knew that um, there are lots of areas where we needed to improve the efficiency and the delivery of healthcare to overcome inequities kind of across the board from cardiovascular disease, mortality, cancer outcomes, uh, particularly the space of like maternal health and um, infant mortality. We have uh, huge differences in terms of health outcomes for different populations based on race and ethnicity and social determinants of health. Um, and then, you know, with COVID, we saw this um, you know, continue on where there are higher rates of infection, higher rates of hospitalization, and higher rates of death uh, for minority populations uh, when they were exposed to the, you know, the, the ravages of the pandemic. Uh, so we continue to have lots of opportunities to improve the way we provide care to help to overcome those inequities. In the community where I live in Mecklenburg County, there's actually differences of about 20 years in terms of life expectancy if you look at across different neighborhoods in our community, which is really wow. unbelievable and not something that you know we we should allow to persist in a community like mine. We have an excellent healthcare delivery system. We have a you know a, a well-trained public health workforce, and we really need to understand you know what are the drivers behind those health inequities and how can we change our our healthcare system and our public health system in a way that addresses those and prevents those inequities and health outcomes from occurring. So what is implicit bias and how does it affect health equity? Yeah, I think that's a, a huge part of that, um, you know, the driver behind the scenes, which is, you know, I'll take myself as a primary care provider. 
Often, you know, we have to see patients pretty rapidly through the day. We might have 15 or 20 minutes for an appointment to, to see somebody, to make decisions, to help advance their care. And unfortunately, we use shortcuts on our brains in terms of understanding, you know, what that patient might be more likely to, um, to do in terms of behavior or might be more likely to follow in terms of a care plan. And those shortcuts that happen on our brain, they're unconscious, we're not aware of them, but they happen and they change the way that we deliver care so that we may be biased against people that don't look like us, don't have the same educational background, don't have the same type of social economic status. And we really have to be aware of that bias, that implicit bias to overcome it. And, and one of the opportunities that I hope we can talk about more is this area of using data and analytics to really provide an objective viewpoint to help people understand where they may have an unconscious bias and how they can help to, to try to overcome that and improve the way they deliver care. Well, funny you mentioned that because that was my next question. <laughs> how, can, uh, <laughs> how can outcomes research and advanced analytics help improve equity? Yeah, so, so you've, you've caught me out, Jay. I'm a real data nerd. And I mentioned before, you know, I'm a technology uh, fan. And this is what I found with w working within our local community. You know, doctors and healthcare providers are there to do the right thing. You know, we're working hard. We really do want to improve care and improve the way outcomes occur. And I, I think, like myself, all of my colleagues that I talk to feel like health inequities are a serious problem that need to be addressed and we need to do something differently to improve those health outcomes. But the problem is sometimes we're not aware of our behavior. Um, well, you know, obviously that's a part of implicit bias or unconscious bias is that we're not actively aware of our behavior. So we have to have that data and analytics behind us to understand what's happening. So an example in our community, we have, um, have had some real problems with outcomes for asthma. In fact, African-American children are four times more likely to die from asthma than their white counterparts. And we looked at that within a you know, large health system here to better identify you know, what were some of the drivers behind that and how could we change the delivery of care to improve those health outcomes. And it really took us using data and analytics to shine a light and to allow providers to see variation in the way they delivered care if you ask them, they would say, oh no, I provide the same type of care to everybody in the same way. I understand the importance of asthma care. But then you know, when you use the data and analytics, you can uncover some of that unconscious bias and help to drive a change in behavior. And sometimes you know, part of overcoming these inequities in healthcare is also deploying different levels of resources to different populations. So in this example, as I mentioned, we had much higher rates of asthma exacerbations, asthma hospitalization, and death for African-American children. So the thought was, you know, what type of resource could we bring to bear? And we found different interventions that work better in that population to assist them in better understanding their asthma, um, feeling more engaged in the treatment plan development, and actually adhering to the medications. And we were able to show differences in terms of outcomes uh, with using those types of tools behind the scenes to, um, to change the way we deliver care. Um, what were some of those uh, interventions that you were talking about? Well, one of the key ones, well, well, first is training providers and helping providers to understand, again, you know, what is implicit bias and how can they actively kind of fight against that. But one of the other ones that was really exciting was using this idea about what was called shared decision making. And traditionally, healthcare approaches have been very paternalistic. You know, I'm the doctor, I know everything. Mm -hmm. If you're lucky, Maybe I'll tell you, you know, what I know and you have to follow my plan and it has to be exactly the way I've laid it out for you. Otherwise, 
you're not going to be successful. But what we found is using this concept or idea of shared decision making, it's building a partnership. It's building using the evidence, you know, using my knowledge as a provider to say, okay, I understand the pathophysiology of asthma, I understand how to treat it, but then also respecting the patient as an expert in their own environment, their behavior, what's going to work best for them, and having a two-way conversation to say, you know, here are some options in terms of treatment plans. Is there one of these that might fit your lifestyle better? Is there one of these that helps you to meet your goals in terms of your asthma outcome better? And then it's a collaborative process. So when we walk away from the clinical encounter, the patient that's been involved with the shared decision-making feels like they've had a voice in the creation of their care plan, and then they're more likely to follow through and engage with actually um, the care plan itself. And you know, all the the data and analytics that you that you were mentioning is that getting to providers now, or is there some work to do to kind of get that to all providers so they kind of have they're armed with that when they when they go into uh, you know meeting with a patient? Yeah, I, that's that's a great question, and I think that's where we need to go as a country. You know, it's often individual health systems or communities that identify these areas of opportunity or inequities and decide to address them directly. And the evidence is out there. You know, we put out papers around how shared decision-making could work to improve asthma outcomes, but the evidence is not taken up universally across all health systems in the same way. So we do need to find better ways of using the tools and the data and analytics and, and you know, dispersing it across all health systems in the same types of ways. And uh, I, th I think that is an opportunity for us is to better identify the importance of these interventions and then help kind of deploy them more universally. And we, we do have some pathways for that, you know, often, well now because of um, you know, different programs, we now have a much higher uptake of electronic medical record systems across the country. Almost all primary care providers use an electronic medical record of some type. And we can start to deploy, you know, use the analytics to pull the data from those, uh, those medical records and show people how they're doing in terms of inequities in healthcare delivery for certain populations and in certain conditions and help them to see that there might be an opportunity to improve. But then also deploying some of these interventions, you know, finding evidence-based interventions and deploying them either through an electronic medical record or web-based service so that, um, you know, they get to everybody in a way that can be useful and actually impact these inequities at a more national level. Uh, is it a question of resources uh, right now, or is it more just awareness that, you know, kind of letting providers know that this information is available? Yeah, that's a great question, Jay. I, you know, I think it's kind of a combination of those things. Unfortunately, you know, the way that our healthcare system works now has many defects, I guess you could say. You know, it's often siloed. There's often not like a systematic approach uh, to addressing issues. Even, you know, at the state level, sometimes like um, payer interventions like around Medicaid, often the patients that we were seeing and taking care of with um, poorly controlled asthma had Medicaid. I know at the state level there was interventions and an interest in deploying those. But I, I think just because of the fractured nature of our healthcare system and the the heterogeneity of our country, you know, in terms of where has Medicaid been expanded, where is it not, uh, where can some of these resources be pulled uh, versus other places where um, 
you know, they may not be in place. So I think it's a, a combination of those factors. I don't know if I answered your question directly, but I think it's a combination yeah. of, you know, how do you make sure that people are aware when inequities are occurring and understand that they do occur at a local and individual level with a provider? And then, you know, from there, what are the tools that you can use? What are the tools that you can draw on to better deliver this care? And I, I think we're getting better. I think that's getting out there nationally. We we have these, um, like PCORI, uh, part of the Affordable Care Act, has been a wonderful opportunity for us to better develop patient-centered research and evidence. And part of PCORI's mission is also to figure out how to deploy that evidence or disperse it more widely so that it's taken up by more health systems and providers. Um, and have you seen progress toward equity uh, over the last, I guess, decade or so? I mean, are, are things moving in the right direction? I would say it's a variable, you know, in, in some areas and some local communities, like I mentioned in our community where we've deployed interventions for certain conditions like asthma, we've seen improved outcomes. I would say, and unfortunately, you know, we've known for a long time about health inequities and the social determinants that drive those. And in many cases, we've not been able to improve those. And I'll give an example, and I, I do feel hopeful about this, but um, in our community and in Charlotte, we have some of the highest rates of new cases of HIV in the country. And so we have deployed interventions. We've understood that that's, case, uh, that's occurring, that it's mainly in African-American men that have sex with men. So finding ways of improving trust with that community and trying to improve access to services. And as you know, Jay, there, there really should be no new cases of HIV. We have medicines to treat it and to prevent it and knowledge about how to prevent it. It should not occur. Um, and yet, you know, it still is occurring at, you know, much higher rates than we would like to see. And, you know, just to delve into that a little bit deeper, I think part of these inequities are also driven by a reasonably deserved lack of trust in our healthcare systems uh, because of things that have happened in the past where certain members of our community don't feel comfortable coming in to get care or don't feel like they can trust the healthcare system to give them the right advice. And I think that's one of the spaces, you know, in addition to what I said about it, using data and analytics to expose or shine a light on some of these issues to help us understand that we need to improve them. Also understanding that that lack of trust exists and using data as a way to communicate with communities, help empower communities, help them to understand and better trust the healthcare system, I think, is another opportunity for us. And I imagine that the pandemic had sort of a negative effect, too, on equity, just because everything was so prioritized towards, you know, dealing with COVID and, you know, you visits to, you know, your doctor or your hospital were, you know, reduced or, uh, you know, done by telehealth. But uh, I, did that kind of kind of set things back a little and just in terms of progress just because of the priority was on you know dealing with the coronavirus yeah that, that's a great question jay i i do think there are some silver linings here to the pandemic in terms of using new technology well i shouldn't say new but emerging technology like telemedicine i think we've gotten a lot better at providing access to services remotely or virtually, and that has a you know a nice potential to help to overcome some of these barriers to access. So many people that have adverse social determinants may have transportation issues. They may live in a rural community. They may not um, have easy physical access 
but we're able to get access through you know some of these new tools like telemedicine. Um, I think the flip side of that, and you know, one of the things that has been discouraging to see is the amount of misinformation and how that misinformation has moved through different parts of the community in different ways. So some um, community members may be more or less susceptible to that misinformation. But I do think you know what's happened, unfortunately, with the coronavirus, despite some Herculean efforts that have helped us to you know build, get the vaccine, get treatments out there. Really, you know, incredible things that happen in our scientific and medical community to overcome the pandemic. Despite that, the misinformation has led to lack of trust, lack of engagement. And I, again, I feel like that's one of the cruxes here in terms of health inequities and poor health outcomes is that bridge, you know, being able to build that trust and, and create relationships with community members where they do feel comfortable and have a trusted source of information that they can follow. Yeah, I guess there's a, a lot of uh, competition for uh, for information, uh, for your information sources, you know, just in terms of where people get it and, and what they believe um, these days. So it's going to be difficult to kind of sift through all the noise. Yeah, absolutely. But again, you know, that's that's one of the things here at UNC Charlotte. I actually have colleagues that are working on this using AI and more ad advanced um, analytic approaches to start to look to understand, you know, what are some of the drivers? Who are the people that are going to be most susceptible to this misinformation? What are the drivers? And what can we start to do to counter that so that we do build trust over time and, and help people understand what the, the right pathway is? So again, I think you know, we live in an amazing day and age where we do have all this technology. We have access to more information than anybody could ever consume. So having tools that help us to refine that information to better understand what is trusted information and also to engage with those populations that are most vulnerable to make sure that they do have the information they need to make the best decisions about their health and improve their health outcomes. And I am optimistic about that. I, I do feel like the, the technology that we have now will allow us to overcome some of these barriers. I think sometimes when we look at the amount of misinformation that's out there, it becomes kind of overwhelming. But I do feel like there's a path through this and using some of these more advanced, you know, uh, artificial intelligence and machine learning techniques and better understanding the data can help us to overcome some of the, the issues that we've seen with misinformation. And I imagine there's a challenge too, just in how you present it and, you know, you know, People, you know, if you're just sending emails, those are going you know, get lost in the ether, right? I mean, you know, how do you kind of get the message across in a way that, you know, people are going to A, receive it, and then B, you know, take it to heart and understand it? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think an important part of that is, you know, your primary care doctor, like if, if the primary care doctors are able to build a trusting relationship with patients and they feel like this is a good source of information that they can go to that can be helpful. The other component is the social network and you know who can you turn to in your social network that can direct you to good high quality information or you know who has access to some of these tools and that that's where it does get a little bit tricky you know who do you trust in your network who do you trust in terms of on the provider side and you know I guess that that is one of the opportunities we have in terms of provider care, I see a lot of variation in terms of provider understanding and use of that data. And you know, I, I think for me, you know, having 
strong tools that I can trust in terms of where the data is coming from or where the information is coming from um, can be um, can be extremely important and hopefully we can be more consistent on the care delivery side in terms of that. Um, so what are the next steps for you in terms of kind of, you know, getting this message out and, and you know, um, making making progress, uh, you know, towards health equity. Right. Well, I really appreciate the opportunity to speak with you today, Jay. You know, I think conversations like this are extremely important in that pathway. I think, you know, just at a very basic level, we still have a lot more opportunities in terms of data. You know, we, we now have lots of health systems, again, that are using electronic medical records, but often that data is not integrated. It's certainly not integrated with data on a consistent basis that's coming from uh, payers, um, insurance companies, Medicare, Medicaid. So I think there's, and then the, there's the data around social determinants of health that I mentioned before. We're starting to collect that, but we're pretty early in the process. We do have some you know, public health tools that help us to better understand what are the social determinants and how do they impact out, outcomes. But I think as we do a better job on the data and analytics side, as we start to integrate this extremely valuable data, then we can start to develop new insights, better understanding of things like, you know, how does misinformation travel through a, a network? How would a um, intervention like shared decision-making for uh, children with asthma potentially change outcomes over time in a community? You know, I think having that data as the basic infrastructure for us that's integrated and enriched um, and of high quality uh, can really help us to drive some of these differences in terms of outcomes. And you know, part of it is just also you know, working together as teams. You know, unfortunately, like in my community, we have a network of free clinics, we have a number of private systems, we have different social providers. None of them are really connected together to really provide that holistic view of the individual as they move through the community and get different services. And I think that's a, a real opportunity for us. And uh, how long will it take to achieve meaningful change in health equity? Is this like, I, I, I imagine this isn't like a, you know, a short-term thing. This is, you know, you've got to kind of, uh, you know, look to the long-term here, right? Yeah, absolutely, Jay. Yeah, I wish I, I had that answer. Um, I always tend to be kind of on the optimistic side. And, you know, here I am 24 years into my career and still, uh, trying to fight this fight around, you know, health inequity and health disparities. But I am hopeful, you know, I think we're in a new place in terms of some of these tools. I think that, you know, our, the cracks in our healthcare system have been exposed even more by COVID, the cracks that have led to these inequities. So we understand where the opportunities are to improve. And again, you know, I think some of these tools like telehealth, um, socially driven interventions that improve social outcomes that we're starting to see taken up by health systems. So improving access to housing, improving access to healthy food, investing in parks, those types of things as they continue to move forward, I think are gonna be the key to improving inequities. But you're right, it's a, it's a long-term game and it's gonna take years for us to really address these, um, these differences in terms of health outcomes and, uh, and improve them. Oh, Dr. Doolin, thanks so much for joining me today. Uh, keep fighting the good fight. Thanks very much, Jay. I really appreciate the opportunity. All right. That wraps up episode 56 of PSQH, the podcast. Thanks to Origami Risk for sponsoring the episode. Thanks for listening, and I hope you join me next time. You can find more information about the show and listen on-demand episodes at psqh.com. You can subscribe to the show on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or Spotify. Thanks again, and stay safe.